You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so background, setting up Exodus. In order for us to gain a historical context, we've got to walk through a little bit of background. So in the beginning of the book, Exodus 1 starts with the end of Genesis. Go figure. And what do we have at the end of Genesis? We had Joseph and the other 12 or 11 sons of Jacob that went to Egypt in a time of drought in the land that they were living in. And in God's provision, these first Israelites had favor in Pharaoh's eyes, the Pharaoh at the time, and were well taken care of. And this is Joseph speaking. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. So the Israelites take up residence in Egypt, and many fruitful years pass. And now at the beginning of Exodus 1, it says they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So at the beginning of Exodus, we have Israelites running all over the place in a land that's not theirs. So this is a direct fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham three generations earlier, for which I'll read now a couple passages. This is Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And in verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, afflicted for 400 years. So remember all of this in light of 1 Peter. Although these were actual events that happened to actual people and an actual person in Abraham, it serves a dual purpose. God is talking both about spiritual children as well as biological ones. So as Christians in this room, we are children of Abraham, as it speaks of in Romans 4. We are those spiritual children, and we belong to that family now because of Jesus. So backing up in Exodus Abraham, the line continues to Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob, and the 12 tribes, and now we're in Egypt. And remembering the covenant spoke of three distinct items I just read, you see three things in that covenant, right? You see offspring and basically making Abraham into a great nation. You see God promising lands that they will call their own. And you'll see God promising that they will be a blessing to all peoples, and they will be blessed because of it. In Exodus 1, we see the first part of that promise fulfilled, right? So there's Israelites running all over the place, and Abraham's probably fit to be tied. So, however, the new Pharaoh, seeing all the success of the Israelites, became afraid of them. And we see in Exodus 1, 9 through 13, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from land. And anyway, moving on, but the more that the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. So is this the people of God, right? This is God's chosen race that Abraham promised from the very beginning. This is God's special people. How did this happen? How did they end up in slavery? How could God allow those things to happen? This is a major connection all Christians share with the Israelites. The Israelites were in physical slavery and in darkness, you could say that, but we as Christians were at one time in spiritual slavery and darkness. We read it in 1 Peter. So those who do not believe also are still in that spiritual darkness. 
So for those of you in the room that experienced that at one time and knew what it was like, do you remember that? Do you remember when you first heard the good news and you cried out to God for your salvation? Do you look back now and see your life as it was before Jesus? Remember hating God or not understanding who he was or misunderstanding or not caring for him? Do you remember feeling joyless or actively engaging in sinful practices? Do you look back and think, man, I don't even know how bad it really was until that light shined on me? And ultimately, in all those things, do you remember crying out for help? Do you remember crying out for help? The Israelites said the same thing. This is verse 23 of chapter 2. During the many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knows. He knows and he understands. He hears our, us in this room. He hears our groanings. He sees and catches our tears in his hands. After all, he experienced them himself. He knows and he understands. He sees you as individual people that although you do, if you're a Christian, fall into the mega church, the thing that God has created from the very beginning, he knows every single one of your tears and he knows all of your sadnesses. So if you had a bad day, God knows about that. And not only does God know about it as the, you know, because he's God, he actually cares about it. He cares about those things, and he wants to feel that pain and sorrow with his children. He wants to walk alongside them in that. Psalm 31, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Just like the Israelites, God knows our thoughts, fears, sadnesses, and our weaknesses. And he doesn't leave us alone. He has a plan for that. He knows and sees our affliction and in his great wisdom has provided a way out. So Exodus 6, 6-7, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring them out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God sees it fit to deliver the Israelites and consequently us too as Christians from our slavery. At this point in the story, God sends Moses to preach deliverance to Israel, uh, the deliverance of Israel to Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh at the time resists. And so at this point, God has to go fight for his people and they enter the plagues. And we could spend a lot of time dissecting these plagues, but for the sake of brevity, suffice it to say that the plagues were meant to enact judgment on the pagan Egyptians. They were meant to glorify God and they are meant to show favor to Israel, culminating in their deliverance with one final plague, and that is the angel of death and the deaths of the firstborn of all Egypt. And that's not just children, that's livestock, that's animals, that's anything that was a firstborn in the land of Egypt. So one note, during all of these plagues that we just mentioned, the Israelites did nothing. <laughs> they did nothing at all in that space. And the takeaway from that is that it is God who fights for us. It is God who delivers us. And we have no acting role in our salvation. We're only saved. So back to that final plague that we talked about. This is the inauguration of the Passover. And that's a holiday still celebrated by Jews today. And it's always right before Easter. And the story of the Passover goes like this. God will kill all the firstborns in Egypt. But God will provide protection for the Israelites because they're chosen. But in that protection, God requires that a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb be killed and its blood be spread across the doorposts of each house 
And then that meat of the lamb is eaten and consumed by the people that it's saving. Exodus 12, 5, or Exodus 12, 13, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you when I strike the land of Egypt. So all this happens. God sends the angel of death through Egypt, but those who have the protective blood of the lamb on their doorpost are passed over. And it's a great time of mourning and wailing in Egypt. It talks about the Egyptians, the cries going up because they wake up and they see all their sons and their daughters and their, their, their animals are dead. And there is a lot of death, but there is salvation for Israel in that space. So then, in light of that great, magnificent thing that happened, God commands the Israelites to celebrate the remembrance of this Passover every year, from then until forevermore. And one note that will come into play later, but in Exodus 12:48 it says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let his males be circumcised. And that's essentially talking about people who are not even Israelites that saw the great acts of God and said, Man, I want to be a part of that. I'm going to be a part of that family. And God commands the Israelites, Yeah, let them in. So remember that. All right, back to this. So the very feast of Passover is celebrated years later in Scripture. And this is Jesus talking. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until all is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that I poured out for you in the new covenant of my blood. Earlier in Scripture at that point, John the Baptist, who was the, the announcer of things to come, the announcer of the Messiah coming, had at one point said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so at this point, Scripture is shouting at us, Jesus is our Passover Lamb. God pours out judgment on the cross and passes over us in that place. And for that we remember. We do it every week. We take communion every week here because we remember that God was faithful and saved us out of our spiritual darkness and delivered us from our spiritual Egypt. And in order to do that, he had to provide a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was that perfect, spotless, spotless unblemished lamb. So the story of Exodus is the story of our salvation. Take notice that Israel, although chosen, still needed the protection of the blood. We are chosen out of darkness, but not because we are good or righteous or holy or because we deserve it, but because God has decided that it would be so in his wisdom and in his love for us as his children. We need the blood of Jesus to wash away our sins, and we need that blood of Jesus so that God will pass over us because we actually deserve judgment, just like the Egyptians. And only then when that blood is displayed across a new doorpost, then we are the children of God. So after the Passover... Israel leaves Egypt, and they are delivered from their slavery, their physical slavery. They're gone. They're out of that. God has moved them out of this land and brought them somewhere else. Exodus 13, 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So suffice it to say, the presence of God was before them in that place. It was leading them. It was guiding them. It was giving them direction. It was showing them where to go. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We, as Christians, upon salvation, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That God of the universe takes up residence in our bodies and leads us and guides us and grows us and sends us on our way. 
just like the Israelites at that time, God does not deliver them from their slavery and then send them on their way to do as they please. He wasn't like, all right, you're out. Good luck. I'll see you in a few years. No, he's there right there with him the whole way. It did not depart from them day or night, always leading, protecting, and guiding them. God had a greater plan in just delivering them. And God has a greater plan in just, than just delivering us. Because we're not delivered just to be delivered. We're delivered to be delivered to something. Exodus 14. This is the part in the story where the, the, the Israelites cross the Red Sea, right? So they're being pursued by their enemies, the Egyptians who just, they were just delivered from, but the Egyptians didn't like that, and so they're chasing after them. And they come to the sea, and they think, uh-oh, we're in trouble. We have no way of getting across. God just delivered us from Egypt, but we're about to die. And God says, no, no. Moses, go take your staff and put it in the ocean. It's going to part. And then you're going to pass through on dry land. You're going to come out on the other side completely unharmed. And so that happens. They do. They pass through the Red Sea, and they come out to the other side, and they are unharmed. But the Egyptians follow them through, and by the time that the Israelites go through on the other side, the sea swallows up the Egyptians and kills them. Romans 6, 3-4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We as Christians experience spiritually what the Israelites experienced physically in the Red Sea. The Red Sea was the grave. It was a metaphor for the grave. And they pass through the grave and come out alive unscathed, completely. The grave swallows up the enemies of God's people, and thus God himself, though. And thus the Red Sea represents our baptism, the outward sign of the inner transformation. And we've celebrated baptisms here at Sojourn, and it's so sweet to watch people go into the water knowing that they're being buried in Christ's death, but then coming out alive, new life in Christ. So that is where we were. We talked about where we were, where we are, and where we're going. At this place in the story, the Israelites were in slavery, but now they've been delivered to something. We were in darkness, in spiritual slavery, and now we've been delivered to this point in time right now. And this is that new life in Christ. This is where we are. So, and that's important in the story for the Israelites and for us. We see deliverance, we see the gift of the Spirit, and we see baptism. So what happens next? These, there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, and all the aforementioned parts happened in the first 14 chapters. So there's a lot of action in that very beginning, but then you have a whole bunch of other chapters where you think, okay, what happened? Like, this is the book of Exodus, which means exit. So they exited, and now what? Now we're in the place that we call the wilderness. The Israelites are now in the desert, and they're going to be there for a long time. And some of this is because they did not believe God and that they could take over the inhabitants of the promised land. They disobeyed God, and they ended up having to be in the desert for an extended period of time. And this is one point where we do need to make an important distinction. And although there are many parallels, the story of the church is not an exact copy of the story of Israel, like I already mentioned. Rather, the story of Israel points to a better story, and that is the story of Jesus and the church. This is all foreshadowing of the things to come. And the point that we have here is that Jesus lived perfectly and died on that cross so that we wouldn't have to wander in the desert for an extended period of time. The time that we wander in our spiritual desert at this place is exactly what we need. And I'll explain why in a minute. But that is an important distinction to make. So, we could talk about a lot of things that happen in the desert at this point, but I'm going to focus on a few things that happen in the wilderness that 
our key takeaways for us as Christians now. Upon deliverance from Egypt, Israel settles into what more or less could be called routine life for them, right? At least life before they enter the promised land. So in the desert, they find manna, which is bread from heaven, Exodus 14. They find water from the rock, Exodus 17. They're given the law, which is Exodus 20 through 23, and they're given the tabernacle, which is Exodus 26. Brief explanation, the tabernacle, that was literally a tent that was built so that God could dwell in the tent and be with the people. And Moses would talk to him, and some other leaders would talk to him at that spot. So each of these items represent the fact that God is continuing to bride for them in every capacity in a land that is otherwise barren. It is the desert. It is harsh. It is hard. But there is life. And why? Because the Israelites are no longer in slavery. They've been brought out of this slavery into a place that, yeah, frankly, at some point seemed like it is not good, but I promise you it is good because God here has provided sustenance in his bread and his water. He's provided a way of life in the law, and he has provided himself in the tabernacle. And yet, in Exodus 17, verse 3, people say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The Israelites have been given new life, but the desert is hard, and it's tempting to think back to that time in slavery when they're in Egypt. And pause for a moment. How often do we do that as Christians? How often do we think, wow, serving the church is hard. Being in a parish is hard. Being sanctified is hard. Being a Christian in general is hard. I wonder what life would be like if I wasn't a Christian, if I could go back to those places where I could do all the things that my flesh desires, and I could have all the comforts of Egypt. This is the wilderness. This is the space we live in now as Christians at this moment. We have been livered, we have been justified, and we have been baptized. And right now, at this very moment, if we are in Christ, the Spirit dwells within us. But the key point is that we're not home yet. We're not home yet. We're in the wilderness. And the life that we need, lead now as Christians is this thing. It is the wilderness. And that's where we're sanctified. That's where we're made perfect. That's where we're made more like Christ. So to sum up everything that happens in these chapters of Exodus, the people of God are learning what it means to be the people of God. And this is super important. They were already God's chosen as soon as God made the promise with Abraham. At that point, God said, you're going to be my people forever, regardless of what they did. And that's the same for us. In the moment of our salvation, we cease to be enemies of God and become children of God. And again, we play no role in that part. God just saves us because he wants to because he desires to. But now, like the Israelites are learning to be the people of God in the desert, we also learn to be the people of God in this space, in our own wilderness, and we absolutely play a part in our sanctification. We are given manna, we are given water, we're given all these things in scripture, we're given the church, we're given community so that we can pick up our mats and walk and grow in what it means to be a Christian because that is the better way, that is the better life that he's provided. And although it doesn't feel like it at the moment, God promises that it is, because it's not where we are right now that's most important, but where we're going. So, although the Israelites wandered around in the desert, it wasn't without a purpose. And so too, we, in our own wilderness of sanctification, we have a purpose right now. 1 John 3, 1-3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him 
as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself as Jesus is pure. In the wilderness, we are being purified and actively take part in that purification. We do it through discipline. We do it through prayers. We do it through study. We do it through community here at this church and other churches that we're a part of. We do it through worship. That is where we're being purified. In the wilderness, we are being made like Christ. In the wilderness, we are learning to be the people of God because we are the people of God. In the wilderness, we are not yet perfected, but we are totally accepted as children the whole time. In the wilderness, we eagerly await the coming of the promised land. It's just like the Israelites. And this is another crazy part. Not only do we do these things while being sanctified, we also invite outsiders in. Remember what I talked about, Exodus 12, 48, if a stranger shall sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let his males be circumcised. That is the mission component. That's what we experience now. That's the mission of the church, to seek out and find those outsiders that are looking in and find upon hearing the gospel are saved because, and become part of this family. Those are those people. Those are those people that we share the gospel with and say, hey, we got a good thing going on here, and we want you to be a part of it. All of this stuff that we talked about and what the Israelites have gone through applies to outsiders, as they're called here in the scripture. We preach the good news of deliverance from our spiritual Egypt. We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We behold and marvel as dead people are made alive and the Spirit comes upon them and dwells within them. We watch it come down by fire. We do this in our very neighborhood of Montrose, knowing that Montrose is only a temporary home and still one that we love deeply. We love sojourners in the land because we're all sojourners in this land. And we do not call this land our final home and that is the point of the sermon text that we read before I started. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, those spiritual fathers, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So how often do you feel like a stranger in exile in this land? I do. This sermon that I put, you know, that we're talking about today actually came at a very good time in my life. Um, and I'm really excited to share it with you. But recently, I've gone through some changes, and actually some that have, the other members of our church have experienced as well that um, are in some ways a loss of comfort, at least in the moment. We have people like Josh and Megan and Katie and Jesse who just moved. They were original planters in our church, and they were, for many of us, best friends. And although they're still alive and they're doing great and they made the right decision to go where they went, they're not here at this moment, and we miss them. And then for me, even something as simple as like my boss, my first boss that I had at my job, um, he was awesome. And he, he's a solid Christian. And over the years, as we developed our friendship, there was often more times that I went into his office to talk about the things of the church and the things of the spirit and the things that are going on in our lives than we actually talked about work. And he was a great comfort to me. He was a mentor, and now he's leaving. He's going to Minnesota. And that's in a few weeks. And then even somebody, like um, to some people, this may be the most trivial of all of them, but recently my parents um, are selling my childhood home. And I know in that place that the home is not, you know, it's just a building, and the home is actually where your friends and your family are. But as I packed up all my stuff on Monday, it was really sad. 
It was sad because I experienced so many memories, some bad, but many that were good. <laughs> many that were good that I remember looking back and thinking, gosh, God was so good to me in those places, even when I didn't recognize it. And so in many ways, I, I mourn the loss of those places. And that's natural. That's natural to feel those things at that time. It's natural to mourn your friends not being in a city anymore. It's natural to mourn the loss of a home. It's natural to mourn, ultimately, the loss of a loved one who actually died. It's natural to do those things because sin is gross and disgusting, and we're in the wilderness right now. And so that's the point. Even though I feel like I'm losing these things, I'm actually gaining everything. Because at the end of all time, I will be going home to the only home that has ever mattered. So that's the wilderness. That's where we are right now in this space. But it doesn't stop there. We have to ask the question, where are we, question, where are we going? So going back to the story of Exodus, at one point the Israelites come to Mount Sinai. And this is the scripture I'm about to read. This is after the law has been given. This is after the Ten Commandments have already been given to those people. And this is the point. The subtitle is called, This is the Covenant Confirmed. This is when God, having seen and promised Abraham all these things many, many years earlier, comes to this place in front of all the people on the mountain and says, I'm confirming this covenant with you. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. So Exodus 24, 9 through 11, then this happens. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. So that's a really important image, right? and one that foreshadows two distinct images, one that has already happened in Scripture and then one that has not yet happened for us. So remember the Lord's Supper that we do every week? The Lord's Supper initiates the shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And this is a distinct shift in that the Israelites were given the law as a means of salvation. And even though God knew that by the law no man could be saved. In short, we cannot be saved by works, but by the grace of God alone. Thus, this meal on Sinai that just happens that I just read, it serves as a prophecy. At this meal and at the Lord's Supper, sinful, unworthy human beings who forgot God often, that worshipped a golden calf, that later on denied Jesus, also fell asleep while he was praying, all those things, they ate with God and were not killed. This only happens because of the sacrifice that Jesus was about to make, because it changed everything. This meal signifies the Last Supper, yes, but it's the Last Supper of the Old Covenant and it initiates a new supper that's going to come with a new covenant. This supper provided the true means of salvation, or at least foreshadowed it. It provided the true source of life, just like that manna and that water in Exodus. It provided the only way for humans to be accepted by and adopted into the family of God. And like I said, this meal that Jesus shared with his disciples as God is not the last one that we see in Scripture. Revelation 19, 6 and 7, 21, 3 through 4 say this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That same Passover Lamb. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The wilderness is passing away. And this is where we're going as Christians. This is our promised land. This is where we now will finally eat and drink with God. And all of his purposes will be accomplished. This is where we'll be home. This will be our better country. So before I go further, I want to remind uh, some people of a few things. If you are not a Christian, if you don't feel like you can resonate with the things that I've already talked about, if you don't feel like you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're not in the wilderness. You're still in Egypt. And you're in desperate need of the deliverance that you yourself cannot provide. And right now, there is not a promised land awaiting you at this point. So please hear today that Jesus is that deliverance from Egypt, from our spiritual darkness, and in him all life and hope are found. And if you hear these scriptures in Revelation, if you hear these scriptures in the New Testament and in Exodus, and your heart longs, you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, talk to someone about it. Talk to someone here who's a Christian, a covenant member, anyone, anyone who professes faith in Christ, talk to them. They'll be glad to talk to you, myself included. But now, for the Christians in the room, as you can imagine, the wilderness is a hard place. Make no mistake about that. Like we've shown it many times through here. So even after all they had seen, the Israelites saw a ton of stuff. Like we're reading these stories, we know that they happened, but the Israelites experienced them in the flesh. But they still grumbled, they still sinned, they still forgot God, they still worshipped a golden calf. They did all these things that ultimately, and they didn't keep up their end of the covenant, but God was continually faithful through that and kept up his end of the covenant and ultimately fulfilled it in Jesus. So just like the Israelites, we too struggle. But knowing right now in this life that we await a marriage feast in which we will be pure, we'll be righteous, and we'll see God as he sees us, we have hope. We have hope right now. And with this hope, we have the strength and courage to grow in godliness, to grow in purity, to grow in righteousness, to grow in love for our Savior, to grow in love for one another, and to grow in love for our neighbors as we preach the gospel boldly to them. We have strength to put to death the deeds of the body. We have strength to pursue sanctification. We have strength to pursue spiritual maturity. We have strength to evangelize. We have strength and courage to keep moving. We have a goal. It's coming. That home is coming. So don't sit in the desert and get a sunburn. You're going to die. That will happen. I know it's kind of funny, but that is, that is the truth. God has called us to keep moving, and he is not, he's still that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire that's leading us and guiding us along that way. And we do all this, and we, see, we do all this seeing and knowing more than Israel ever did at that time. We are the bride, we're the church, and it's in the wilderness that we're getting ready to be presented, unblemished and unashamed to our perfect husband, King Jesus. We're getting ready. So today, if you are sad about anything, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you are weary, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you're sick, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If your job is demanding and you think that you'll never accomplish anything, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you lost your job recently, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If your coworkers are unpleasant or demanding, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you don't feel like you're being sanctified at all and sinning feels like the only thing you know how to do, take heart, you're in the wilderness. 
If your marriage is hard, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you're single and don't like it, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you feel overwhelmed, spiritually weak, or unknowledgeable about the things of Scripture, take heart, you're in the wilderness, and know that you have the power to learn those things. If you don't feel excited about the church right now, or its people, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you feel lonely, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you have loved ones that are dead, that are dying, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you're struggling with doubt at this moment right now, take heart, you're in the wilderness. If you feel like spiritual discipline is so far away, take heart, you're in the wilderness. And really, if you hear all these things, everything that I've talked about and have no idea where you are, take heart, you're in the wilderness. And if life is good right now, if everything is going well and the blessings in your life are amazing and you can't stop thinking about and praising God because of them, take heart. You're still in the wilderness, but it gets better. All of those good things that you're experiencing in this moment are going to even get better. Good things still happen in the wilderness because God is still with us, just like the tabernacle with the Israelites, but in a better way because the Spirit of God dwells within us. And not everything that we do in the wilderness is going to be bitter toil because we have a good Father that gives us good gifts, each to the measure that we need. So in all of that, don't forget that these good things and these bad things, the bad things are going to pass away, but the good things are shadows or even better things to come. And so you fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, King Jesus, and that's where you go. You're going home to the wilderness. You're not going to the wilderness. You're going home to heaven to be with God, to eat and to drink and to fellowship. We are the people of God. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We have been gifted the Spirit and we have been baptized. Right now we're in the wilderness, but we are growing in grace as we actively seek out other people, other outsiders, other sojourners in this land to join us in our passage. We're going to the promised land. We're going home to be with Jesus. So let's pray together.